Would you go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some on a rack out in the lobby right at that door. If you don't own one, we've got some you can keep. So have no shame. Run back, grab one. We're going to be in Romans, chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. We have a a good long section to look at this morning, so I I just invite you to, to follow along closely with me as I read. This is God's word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her In whatever she may have need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. Our Father, this is, this is a great privilege to be here together, opening your word. God, we love, we love that we know you, and we love that we have this word from you so we can know you more. We love that you speak to us here. We love that you have, you have given yourself so richly to us in your word. And so thank you that we have this time, and we want in this time to hear from you. It is your voice we love. It is your voice we need. And so I pray, Father, that you would come and that you would speak and that you would make us who you want us to be. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have come to the second to last week of our our walk through the book of Romans. And what we're beginning this Sunday is really the postscript of Paul's letter. He finished his argument, the main argument of the letter, in the passage that Mike preached last week. And you may have noticed as we read it that the tone of this passage is really different from what came before. Paul is talking a lot about himself in this passage. He's talking about what God has called him to and what his plans are. He's got people he wants to say hi to in the church at Rome. And, and so this is how I've been thinking about this section of Romans. I want you to imagine that Paul has somehow traveled through time and he has come and he's preached here on a Sunday morning. And in his preaching, he has argued with us. He's reasoned from scripture about who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for our lives, how we should live in light of it. And at the end of his sermon, your head is spinning and your heart is full. And you know that just the impact of his his argument, his reasoning, his opening the Bible is going to, it's just changed your life. You're never going to be the same. But now imagine that after lunch, after that sermon, after Sunday morning service, Paul comes to your house for lunch, and you serve him, I don't know what, you serve him chili. And now you're sitting around the table, you've got your bowls of chili, and, and Paul, is, Paul is talking to you in a very different way now. He's not arguing with you, he's not reasoning with you, he's, he's reflecting on his life, and how God has used him, and uh, what, what he wants to get done if God wills and his life continues. He's talking about people he's known and people he misses, people he, he can't wait to see. And when lunch is over and Paul has graciously thanked you and gone back to his hotel for a Sunday afternoon nap, you're, just, you're reflecting on what that time was like and you realize that you've been impacted again, but not, not as much by his reasoning, by his unpacking of the truth. You've been impacted by his life, by his heart, by, by Paul himself. And you know, just as you knew earlier in the morning, that because of this time with Paul, my, my life is not going to be the same. So this, this passage from chapter 15, verse 14, to the end of the letter, is like that, it's like that chilly lunch. Paul has taught what he wants to teach, but now, now he's relating in a different way to the Romans. He's, he's relating on a personal level, life to life. And one of the things that strikes you as you read this, that would have struck you if Paul had been sitting in your, in your dining room, is the, the certainty Paul has that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Paul has purpose. 
He has, he has clarity on what God's called him to. And, and because he has clarity, he knows what his life is for. And so he knows what his priorities are. He knows what he's supposed to be doing, right? He says, I've really wanted to come see you. But I haven't been able to because I have this work over here that's so important that God has called me to that I haven't been able to justify making a trip to see you. But now I'm wrapping up this work. This work is done. I've got other work in Spain. And that means I can come see you on the way. But I can't come right now because I've also been collecting this, this giving from the churches in Achaia and Macedonia from Greece, and I'm taking it to the saints in Jerusalem. But once I get that done, that's really important. But when that's done, I can't wait to come see you, right? He, he knows what he's about. He knows what God has called him to. He knows what comes first. And that's really compelling in a time and place where we're being told over and over that, that your life isn't for anything. You weren't made for a purpose. You weren't, you weren't made at all. You're just here. Nothing you do will last or matter eternally. And I find that, and I think lots of people, even who aren't religious, find that hard to believe. We're hungry for purpose. We want to be part of something that matters, that has an impact beyond our life. We know there's more to life than getting the kids to school, hitting our deadlines at work, getting the kids in bed, and sitting on the couch. There's more to life than getting through each week to Saturday, getting through each year to vacation, getting through our career to retirement. We, we know we're not just here to kill time. We're for something. And this passage is in our Bibles to help us know what that something is. Because Paul isn't writing to them just to tell them about he has this totally unique purpose that has nothing to do with them. He just thinks they'll find it interesting. He's writing because his purpose is also their purpose, and he wants to engage them in it. So this passage gives us four aspects of the purpose of God's people, the mission of the church, its aim, its power, its priority, and its need for partnership. Aim, power, priority, partnership. First, the aim of mission is a people-pleasing to God. A people pleasing to God. Look at verses 14 to 16. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you boldly, very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I didn't write you this long letter because you're bad. You're, you're doing well. You're, you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. I wrote you this because I have this call from God, this responsibility before God to bring the Gentiles to maturity. You're a Gentile church, and I have this call to make you an acceptable offering to God. So Paul sees himself as given this priestly responsibility to, to present an offering to God, a gift to God, and the gift he's called to present is the Gentiles. Acceptable. He says he wants them to be, in verse 16, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made holy. He says it in, in verse 18, he says that he's, his call is to bring them to obedience. He wants to present to God. He wants the output of his life to be a holy people, a mature people, a people pleasing to God. Paul's mission is to see people who don't know God become obedient to him, to have their lives 
So totally transformed that they're no longer living for themselves, but they're living for God. And how does that happen? He tells them that he has this priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul wants to see people's lives transformed by the power of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So how does, how does news transform us? Well, here's how. The, the default state of humanity into which we are all born is spiritual death and separation from God because of our sin, because instead of living for him, living to serve other people, we just live for ourselves. We do what we want, what makes us feel good, regardless of how it runs against what we were made for, regardless how it affects the people around us. We live for ourselves, and the more we sin— the more we store up against ourselves the judgment of God, the just punishment for all the ways we've gone off the path. We are all guilty before him. He requires righteousness, and we don't have it. And because of that, what we deserve is to be cast away from the presence of God, to be cast away from his love, away from his life, away from his joy forever. But... Because God loves us and doesn't want to send us away, what he did was he sent his son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life. We have all failed in righteousness, but Jesus came, he lived a perfectly righteous life, and at the end of his life, he suffered the penalty our unrighteousness deserves. He died on the cross. He was put to death. He was cast away from God so that we could be brought in. And when we trust him, we receive his perfect record of righteousness. So God punished Jesus for our unrighteousness, and when we trust in Jesus, we receive the gift of righteousness, and now we stand before God clean and accepted and beloved. So how does that news transform us? You might think, you might think that if if what I'm saying is true, and if we can be accepted before God by trusting in Jesus and not by obeying God, that that removes all motivation to obey. Why should we obey? Why should we change at all if we've already been given the gift, if we already know that we're in? But Paul says, no, actually, as I do this priestly service, as I preach the gospel, people become obedient. He says twice in the book of Romans, he calls it the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. He says, the better you understand the gospel, actually, the more obedient you become. Why? Why obey God if all the fear of his judgment has been removed? Because there's a motivation stronger than fear. Love. When you've seen the love of God for you, the love that sent his son to the cross, when you've experienced his love and you've come to love him in return, you want to live for him. You want to live his way. Having seen all of God's love for us, that love utterly transforms us. And Paul knows the gospel transforms people because he's experienced it. Right? This this passage is amazing when you remember who wrote it and what his life was like before. Remember Paul, early in his life, he hated Christians. He dragged them out of their houses. He had them thrown in prison. He gave his approval to their execution. And here he is, and he's just overflowing with love. He can't wait to see them. He he wants to be refreshed in their company. He, there's, this, there's this beautiful, I love this part in, in chapter 15, verses 25 and following. He's talking about these Greek Christians, these Gentile Christians that have made this offering, and they're sending it to the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's just so proud of them. He, they, they gave willingly. It was, it was their joy to give. They were pleased to do it. 
to give, to give sacrificially to people they've never met just because, they're, just because they're in the same family, right? And Paul, he just loves what they've done. You can see it in, in these greetings in chapter 16, where it, we don't have time to work through that name by name, but if you look through that this afternoon, four times Paul names someone and calls them his beloved. He, he loves this church. He's never been there, but he loves them. He can't wait to see them. And this is, this is an, it's, it's an incredibly, if you read the names, it's an incredibly diverse church in Rome. Okay, if you read these names, there are people in there that Paul calls my kinsmen, that, that are, they're Jews, just like Paul, but they're not the only ones he loves. There are all these other names that are Gentile that Paul loves. In this church, there's, there's really upper class people, right? There's some names in here. Aristobulus and his, his family, the family of Aristobulus in verse 10, verse 11, the family of Narcissus. These were famous people in Rome. People in their household were Christians, and Paul embraces them too. But there are also names in here that are almost certainly slaves. There are men, and he names nine women. And, and all these people, this incredibly diverse church, Paul embraces them all in his heart because they are his family. The gospel has made him a person of extraordinary love. The gospel has changed this man. Well, God has changed him through the gospel. And if you, if you need the reminder this morning, he can change you too. And the aim of Paul's life is to see more and more people experience that transformation, to become obedient to God. The aim of his mission is a people pleasing to God. And that's not just his mission, it's ours too. It's true that Paul's call was unique. There's only one apostle to the Gentiles. But it wasn't that Paul had this unique call that, that nobody else shares. He just had a unique role in the same mission God has given to all of his people, right? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. It wasn't just for Paul. It was for all of us. It was for the end of the age to go and make disciples, to see people transformed into obedience to following God. And that's why Paul, he can speak of his work in this passage, chapter 5, verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work, or in verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. But he also speaks of their work. In verse 6 of chapter 16, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. This isn't just Paul's work. It's all of our work. We all have a part to play in speaking the gospel so people who don't know God come to know God, so people who know God grow in their obedience to God. The aim of mission is a people pleasing to God. Are we becoming that? Are you, if you're a Christian, are you growing day by day in your obedience to God because of the love you've received in Christ? And are, are we helping one another pursue that? So we don't, we don't just want to see transformation in our own lives. We want to see other people's lives impacted as well. And if, if we want to grow in that, in going to them, we need to see, secondly, the power of mission, which is Christ working through us. So look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, 
so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So, so Paul's reflecting here on his ministry, and he's saying that, that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is in northern Greece. It's a, it's a distance of more than a thousand miles. And he's, he said he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel there. He says, I have no more work to do there which is amazing. So what he doesn't mean is that everyone in that whole part of the Roman Empire has become a Christian. But what he means is that in every part of that area, there are Christians doing this work. That are, they're speaking the gospel. There are churches in every city. These, these churches are, are continuing what Paul has begun. They're, they're reaching out with the gospel. And he said, my work there is done. It's an amazing accomplishment. But Paul wants to be crystal clear for everyone reading this letter that it's not him He's not the one who did it. He says, Christ has accomplished it through me. The mission of the church is actually the mission of Jesus. Jesus is working all over the world, bringing people to himself, raising up a people, pleasing to God. It's his work, his accomplishment. We're just his instruments. We're just the tools of his trade. Why is Christianity globally growing 30 times faster than atheism? Why... why Will China, in 10 years, why is China expected to have more Christians than America? Why, why in France, a place where you would think, if anywhere, the gospel would just be totally seen as a relic of a bygone era, why is Jonathan and Salome Spencer's church growing every month? It's because Jesus is alive, and he is accomplishing his mission through his people. So Jesus is not mainly calling you to do something for him, He's calling you to make yourself available so he can do something through you. This is really important. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you know you're supposed to be talking about Jesus to other people. And a lot of us don't want to. And we feel guilty because we don't want to, but that guilt isn't necessarily leading to any change. And part of why we speak so seldomly about Jesus to people who don't know him is because we, we don't think, if we're honest, that it's going to do any good that anything's going to change. We think, I'm, I'm not going to say it right, or they're going to raise an objection I can't answer. They're going to ask a question, and I, don't, I won't know the answer to it, and it's, it's just going to be embarrassing for me. They're not going to change. It's going to make the relationship awkward. What's the point, right? But what if we believe that the gospel really could change our friends and neighbors because the power behind it isn't ours, but God's? Now, have you seen The Lion King? Okay, not... Not the new one, the old one. The, the new one, I'm sure, is fine. I feel no need to see it. The old one was perfect as it was. So in the, in the Lion King, there's this scene, right, where Simba and Nala have wandered into this elephant graveyard, and they've been, uh, they've been trapped in there by these hyenas, right? These hyenas are coming, licking their chops, and Simba, bless his heart, tries to roar, do you remember this? And it comes out like, because it's just like, it's like a kitten, right? And the, the hyenas just laugh and they come a little closer and then he tries to roar again and there's this full-throated, earth-shaking roar. Why? Because Mufasa has just bounded into the area and he, and he, he tosses these hyenas, he sends them running for the hills, right? The, the voice that sent them running wasn't Simba's. What if we believed that behind our weak voice in speaking the gospel was Jesus' all-powerful voice, able actually to bring about faith and change and obedience? 
In the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, which we referenced earlier, Jesus told his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He tells them to make disciples and he says, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So the one who has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is with us always. He's with us everywhere. He's with you at work and at school. He's with you on the basketball court and in the playgroup. Everywhere you are with people who don't know Jesus, Jesus is there with you. He's with you in your home. If you have a spouse who doesn't know him, if you're trying to get the gospel across to your kids, Jesus is with with you there. The power is his. So why don't we begin each day praying, Lord Jesus, I'm scared to talk about you, but I want to be used by you. I want to see the people around me come to you, and I'm offering myself to that work. I want, I want to offer myself to you, so give me opportunities and give me words. Do this through me. I think we'll get some stories out of that, of God working through us in ways that are going to be really encouraging and wonderful. So we've seen the aim of our mission, its power, and now we'll see the priority of mission, which Paul says is those who have not heard. Look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In this mission, not everyone has the same role. Okay, so Paul, Paul's role is not to build on foundations. Paul's role is to lay foundations. He wants to go to a place, it's a missionary call, to go to a place where Christ has not been named and to speak the gospel until a church begins, a church that can continue, can build on that foundation and reach their neighbors. And then Paul wants to go on. He wants to keep moving all the way to the ends of the earth. He wants to reach all the nations with the good news about Jesus. Jesus didn't die simply to save lots of people. He died to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every people group in the world. Jesus wants to praise him and know him and be saved. In the book of Revelation, there's a song of praise directed to Jesus, which says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it's not just Revelation. It's not just the New Testament that God talks about that. It's all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah, which, which Paul quotes here in verse 21, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This, this comes from the same part of Isaiah, the same song that Isaiah, that Isaiah wrote about, remember this, the, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Is this, this song pointing ahead to Jesus. And, and even in that song, in that verse, in chapter 52, verse 15, he's talking about the many nations. The many nations will hear and see and come to know God. And that means that the mission of the church isn't just to speak to our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and our friends about Jesus, though it is that. It means that some of us will need to go where there aren't any Christians, or there aren't many Christians, where, where, there, where we have to go and help a church get going there that can reach its own nation, right? Not everyone needs to go, but some of us should. And some of us have. 
Like Drew and Joanne in North Africa, and Jeff and Meredith in Albania, and David and Yulia Beatty, training workers, taking the gospel to Muslims in Eastern Europe. There are people who used to be sitting in these seats who have transplanted their lives where Christ is not named so that the nations can know who died for them. Don't assume God wants you to stay. I hope that some of us don't. But even if we stay, I think this idea of prioritizing those who haven't heard needs to reshuffle our life here, right? We're all on the same mission. There are, there are missionaries called to go where Christ is not named, but we're all on this mission together. There's, there's mission that needs to be done here in evangelism. There's, there's a temptation that comes with being part of a big church and a church where you hopefully like other people. And the temptation is that we will max ourselves out relationally with church folks and, and leave no margin in our lives for people who don't know God. If we, if we want to be part of Jesus' mission, we have to make it a priority to spend time with people who don't know him. Okay, this is hard, right? I've, I've been back at Crossway about two months. I already have way more people I want to spend time with when I can, we're, than I can. We're, we're making dinner plans like months in advance, right? It feels like we have no margin. But if we, want, if we want to be part of this, we have to have margin. We have to have uncommitted nights when we can be outside with our neighbors. We have to have margin in our work where we can have a cup of coffee with a coworker. We need to be able to say to another, another soccer family, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? Not, why don't you come over for dinner in February when we next have an opening? Now, this may mean spending a little less time with one another, which is sad, but it's okay because we always have heaven. Or it may mean finding ways to, to bring our separate worlds together by going out to dinner with church friends and non-church friends or having a, a cookout at the house with gospel community and our neighbors. So, and what if you don't have any non-Christian friends? Make some, okay? Do what we've talked about. Start each day praying for God to give you opportunities. Then pay attention to who's around you. And now I'm going to tell you the hard part. Start a conversation, right? Some of you think that I'm joking about that being the hard part because you're extroverts. But for some of us, that is the big barrier to get over. So I was, I was telling the young adults on Friday that I've, I've been trying to take some ground here, Right? So I'm trying to think about who I see on a regular basis that I don't have a relationship with. And so one of these places is preschool pickup, okay? So at preschool pickup, you come and all the parents stand outside of the door waiting for the kids to come out. And you, there's a courtesy kind of 10 feet you give everybody else. And you just look at your phone. And this is what we do. We just look at our phone and we wait. And as soon as the door, come, the door opens, we grab our child, we put them in our van, and we take off and make sure that we don't make eye contact with anybody else. And so at preschool pickup, I'm just trying to start conversations. I just want to meet somebody and learn a name, make a connection with someone who has a kid the exact same age as my kid, the same way at soccer practice. At soccer practice, we come, we set up our folding chairs, we give each other lots of space, and we just only speak to our children. And so I'm trying to, you know, move my chair over and sit by somebody and, and start a conversation, and who knows, right? But we have, to, we have to start these relationships somewhere. There are people in your life that you can do that with. Loneliness is epidemic in America. You are not the only person looking for friends. So build some friendships. Ask lots of questions to show that you actually care about them. You're not just, you're not just in this to get something across so that you can then get out of there. Build a friendship if you build a good friendship, what you care about is naturally going to come out. You'll eventually talk about what's important to you, but you'll never get the chance if you don't build the friendships. So I hope you're seeing how this passage is orienting us to the mission we're called to. It's aim, 
its power, its priority, and finally, the need for partnership in mission, financial, relational, and prayerful. So we, we have important work to do right here in being used by Jesus to prepare a people pleasing to God. But we also have a role to play in the lives of those who have moved their lives where Christ is not named. In the last part of chapter 15, we see at least three different facets of this partnership between the Roman church and Paul. So first, there's a financial partnership. If you look at verse 24, Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. So Paul is saying, I hope when I come, you're going to have some money for me that will help me take the gospel beyond you to Spain. I hope that you can help me on my way. So remember, Jesus is the one accomplishing this work, right? And one of the ways he's accomplishing this is by giving some of you jobs that pay more than you need so that you can give more away to this kind of work. And when you give to Crossway, you are giving to mission partners. You're giving to our mission partners at UW Parkside and in Brazil and the Philippines and Canada and Kenya and elsewhere. But if you have the means... Why not partner directly with one of our mission partners and help them on their way? Like Phoebe. Okay, Phoebe, Paul introduces Phoebe in the first two verses of chapter 16. Phoebe is the one who has carried this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And he says at the end of verse 2, she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe has invested her resources in Paul to help Paul on his way, to help Paul keep moving and laying foundations for the gospel. So financial partnership is crucial, but the reality is many of us can't give what we want, right? Because we're on a fixed income or we're out of work. We, have, we keep having more children who need to be fed and clothed. There are other ways to partner. So look, look back at verse 24 again. So I hope to see you in passing, to be helped in my journey, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul just wants to spend time with them. Right? You might remember from chapter 1, he said, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So he wants to come encourage them, but he also wants to be encouraged by them. Being on mission is hard. Whether your mission is to Albanian Muslims, or secular French, or parents of preschoolers, there's inward reluctance to overcome. There's barriers that you hit. There's discouragement and sadness over people that don't seem interested in what you have to say. We need to encourage each other in this, and we need to encourage our mission partners. So if you are in a bridge group, thank you. And one of the most encouraging things you can do is to pray. Look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. We pray because, remember, Jesus is the one accomplishing the work through us. And Paul wants him to pray very practically. He says, I really want to see you, so pray that when I go to Jerusalem I don't get arrested. And, and I really want, when I get there, to bring this gift from the Gentiles and to have it be received well, for it to be an expression of the unity of the church. So please pray that that happens. He's, he's, what he's saying is, he says, strive together with me in your prayers. And that word is, agonize with me. 
struggle with me. My ministry is a struggle, and I want you struggling with me in prayer. Come alongside me. Join my fight. Do you know who the other people in your gospel community are trying to reach out to with the gospel? And are you striving together with them in prayer? Do you know what barriers our mission partners are hitting relationally, logistically, spiritually, and are you striving together with them in prayer? If we want to see Kenosha and Racine and the county in northern Illinois filled with people who love Jesus and are living for him, we're going to have to strive together in prayer for that. It's going to have to be Jesus who does it through us. So are we? Are we striving together in prayer? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was commissioned miraculously by a vision of the risen Christ, and he knew he couldn't do his work without prayer. And we can't either. Listen, Jesus is using the gospel to raise up a people pleasing to God, and he's calling us to join him. Our lives have a purpose, a purpose with global reach and eternal significance. To engage in this purpose, we need to make it a priority. We're going to need to reshuffle friendships to make space in our lives for people who don't know Jesus. We're going to need to reshuffle our budgets to make margin to give generously. We're going to need to reshuffle our schedules to make it a priority to encourage one another and to pray. But we're not doing this alone. Not only are we doing it together with other believers, but we're doing it in the presence and the power of Jesus who came from heaven to gather us in, to bring us home to him, and he wants to use us to bring others also. So are you in? Let's pray. Our Father, this reminds us once again that What you have called us to is beyond us. It's beyond our strength. It's beyond our capacity. It's beyond, in many ways, our desire. And yet we want to be doing what you made us to do. We know that's where the joy is. We know that's where you're glorified. We know that's where where we find what we were made for. And so we pray, Father, that you would send your Spirit that you would send your spirit to fill us with love and compassion for those around us, to fill us with courage, to bring things up, to fill us with wisdom about where to invest our lives. God, we pray that you would give us opportunities, that you would give us today, this week, opportunities to speak about Jesus, to move a relationship one step forward, to encourage someone in their gospel work. Father, please use us so that more people know you and so that you are more glorified in this world that you made. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.